кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. Владимир Путин's mobilization runs into snags as Russians take to the streets and draft-age men flee the country in massive numbers. Moscow's sham referenda, conducted at gunpoint in four occupied Ukrainian regions, wrap up with Putin planning to formally annex those territories this week amid widespread international condemnation. Suspicious explosions damage the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines in Europe in apparent acts of sabotage, heightening fears of the continent's energy security as winter approaches. And meanwhile, the war grinds on, with Ukraine pushing ahead with its offensive to liberate Russian-occupied territory in the east and in the south. So what to make it all? What happens next? Well, stick around, because I got just the two guests to unpack it all. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from New York City is retired U.S. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, a 37-year veteran of the United States Armed Forces and the former commander of U.S. Army Europe. These days, Ben is a senior advisor at Human Rights First. Welcome back to The Vertical, Ben. Thank you very much, Brian. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. And also joining us from the magical Estonian capital of Tallinn is veteran Russia watcher James Scher, a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. Welcome back to The Vertical, James. Thank you. Thank you. So, James, to get us started, I, I understand that earlier this month uh, you met in Kiev with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Um, to just get us started, what, what, uh, what can you tell our listeners about that meeting, about your trip to Ukraine? What were your main takeaways there? I was there with a small expert group, uh, oddly enough, primarily American, organized by the Polish Institute of International Affairs. And I was struck by how sober and level-headed everyone was. Uh, this, mind you, just after the dramatic and striking Kharkiv offensives, when a lot of the Western commentariat was describing events in Ukraine in superlative terms. The Zelensky himself, the military professionals we met, were not. They were very professional, very shaded, very sober, Uh, Zelensky personally is aware that there are powerful voices in the West that want Ukraine to succeed only partially so mm -hmm. that this will end in a negotiated compromise. Uh, he, I certainly share his view, he shares mine, that this would be ruinous for Ukraine and Europe. And he also believes that um, the West still underestimates Ukraine's requirements when it comes to material and economic assistance. So in a way, all this was encouraging, the sense that we're dealing with um, very level-headed uh, people who understand uh, what they are dealing with. 
Yeah, I know that 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 that's very 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 good to hear. And I did want to get us going because I I do know you just just a couple of weeks ago were were in Kiev with with President Zelensky. As far as this week's developments go, the big question on my mind and I don't know a lot of people's minds is the extent to which Putin's mobilization and the sham referenda are are, are actually going to affect the trajectory of the war. Um, my initial reaction is not that much. Um, the mobilization looks like a fiasco so far. Um, those that are mobilized are going to be poorly trained and poorly motiv- uh, motivated, and it's going to take months to get them to the front. Um, moreover, in addition to manpower shortages, Russia is also suffering from equipment shortages and logistical problems. As far as the referenda go, nobody's going to recognize uh, them or take them seriously, and nobody's going to seriously believe that these territories are really under Russia's nuclear umbrella. Uh, Ukraine's certainly not going to stop trying to liberate them, and the West is, I hope, not going to stop arming Ukraine. James, what's your take on that? I want to get both of your takes on this. Let's stick with you for the moment, James, then go to Ben. What's, what's your take on how these things are going to affect the trajectory of the war? Well, again, um, the Ukrainians uh, I I spoke to seem to share my view that none of this is a game changer for Ukraine. Uh, The mobilization might add to their problems for a brief period of time. But the main question on my mind is what does all of this mean for Russia? Mm. Uh, It's quite extraordinary. Uh, It's not simply the... The fact that masses of people are trying to get out, and you see these photographs of border crossing, but interestingly enough, they're being let out. Uh, And that is just one indicator to me that um, the Kremlin is very worried about the anger of these people. A lot of them, you can see this, are are beefy fit uh, young men who have served in the armed forces before. So they've uncorked a bottle here. Which is going to take this in a uh, in a new direction. Um, uh, I I can't see how it is going to help them, um, but I can see it complicating what are already major complications that they hadn't budgeted for. Right. So you see the main effect of this domestically in Russia, but you don't see much uh, effect on the battlefield in Ukraine. I, to, to I think it is a very hazardous time to be projected predicting Russia's future trajectory. I do not see this as a game changer for the war in Ukraine. Incidentally, one footnote, one reason for annexing this territory is that after they are annexed, they can now start annex- they can now start conscripting Ukrainians into the mm. Russian military, those who haven't already uh, fled. Uh, a lot of will have Done. There's a wider set of questions about where Russia's strategy is going, uh, about which I have some very ominous thoughts. But I know you're planning to get to all of that later. But we just bear that in mind. Yeah, no, we're, we're we were just scratching the surface here in the beginning. But yeah, I do want to jump into that. Um, but I do want to bring Ben into the discussion here. Uh, ben, ben I, I'd like I'd like to hear your thoughts on how you see the mobilization and the annexations, if at all, affecting the war. I mean, you've been pretty bullish on Ukraine's chances to win this war throughout. How do you see this uh, week's developments? Do you see this week's developments changing the trajectory at all? Uh, I remain uh, bullish on on Ukraine and remain confident that they will push Russians back to the 23 February line within the next two to three months and that they will be sitting in Crimea by the middle of next year. Now, of course, that is bullish indeed. (laughs) There's a gigantic caveat with that, which is that the West continues to do what we said we were going to do, that we keep sanctions in place 
and we continue to, to deliver, that's all of us, what we said we were going to deliver. That's, that's essential. Now, the mobilization, I think, is an attempt by the Kremlin to prolong, they're going to trade bodies for time. I, mean, I don't think any serious person believes that um, however many of these uh, unlucky men actually end up in uniform and end up at the front are going to um, add uh, operational or tactical capability anytime soon. It still will thicken the lines, if you will. And so I think the Kremlin is willing to trade thousands of bodies. Um, this is their thinking in order to prolong the conflict and hopes that uh, the West tires of this and and uh, we start looking for our own sort of off ramp. And, and I think probably this uh, the pipeline explosions are connected to that yeah. as, as well. But what's going to happen, the reason this uh, attempt by the Kremlin, if if my assessment is correct, about the why it's going to fail because what this is going to do, it's going to accelerate the deterioration of the Russian logistics system that is already exhausted. I mean, for starters, you got 300,000 more mouths to feed. Uh, and the amount of money that's going to be required, even for the low standard of what's given to a Russian private, is still a huge amount of money that's going to be diverted into that versus other things that are needed for the economy, for example. Um, how are these guys going to even get to the fight? I mean, they really are literally going to be cannon fodder. Now, in the past, with Russian forces, and I think uh, James will have better thoughts on this than I, even I do, but, you know, you could, the Russians would rely on masses of infantry because they could support them with masses of artillery. Um, because of the wise use of and skillful employment of weapons provided by the West to the Ukrainians, that Russian logistics system has been getting pounded for the last several weeks. And they've never been quite good at logistics anyway to begin with. And right? so, well, my, that's not my point. My point is that the artillery ammunition is not getting to the guns the way it used to and the quantities needed. Of course, there's still thousands of rounds out there, but they're, so you've got masses of infantry eventually show up somewhere. Of course, they're going to show up just in time for the really bad weather to start. And now, and so the logistics system has to deliver winter clothing, heating, you know, all the stuff necessary for troops in the wintertime too. It's, it's going to spiral down in mm -hmm. my view and Ukrainians are going to maintain pressure. They're not going into winter quarters. They're going to keep up the, the pressure. Right. And Ben, there's something else I noticed in the news this week that I wanted to get your your, your comment on. It's on it's on the on the on the western side. There's gonna be a new US command set up in Weisbaden, Germany, um, that's gonna to report to the the, the 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 general in charge of of, of UCOM, General Christopher Cavoli. This is uh, basically to coordinate Western deliveries of weapons, is my understanding, and also the, the training uh, of Ukrainian troops. Um, can you say something about how, how, how significant a development is this? Is it something that was badly needed? Yeah, uh, this, this, keep in mind that for the last few months, uh, U.S. European Command in, in Stuttgart was the home uh, or the host, if you will, for this international cell that was primarily U.S. and Brit that was coordinating the delivery of all the aid that was make its way into southeastern Poland, and then would be handed over to Ukrainians, and then they would distribute it inward uh, inside Ukraine. That cell has moved to Wiesbaden, Germany, which is the home of U.S. Army Europe, which is the army component of U.S. European Command. <clears throat> and so 
um, I think the creation of this new um, headquarters, and I don't know what sort of timeline it's on, but it'll it'll probably look something like what we created in Iraq and in Afghanistan to manage the train, advise, assess, modernize uh, all of the things, how, how this aid gets into uh, effective employment by the Ukrainians. I like it because now you've got a standalone headquarters or an entity, let's say, versus something that was taken out of hide as a part-time job almost with borrowed manpower. Now you've got a headquarters that'll have a general officer of some level that will be full-time committed to doing this. And I think this also is wise because it will help accelerate what's in the pipeline now, but it also represents a longer term effort mm -hmm. by the United States. Like we're committed to the security of Ukraine as part of a greater Black Sea strategy as well. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's my understanding is that this is a proposal by General Cavoli and that the Secretary of Defense Austin is, is, is looking at it, but the reporting suggests this is going to happen. So I, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. James, did you want to jump in here to say something? I just wanted to add two footnotes to Ben's very pertinent comments. The first is that, and I think this is underappreciated in many quarters, Ukraine over many months has been going through an extraordinarily difficult transition from Soviet weapons systems to highly advanced uh, Western uh, systems that are designed very differently, that are much more complex, that require elaborate training, and even so, Ukrainians have become proficient in utilizing those weapons very creatively and resourcefully uh, in record time. But it's an amazing accomplishment. Nevertheless, up to now, our own supply system has given them an, an additional unnecessary burden in that there are too many different types of systems going into the mix from different countries. And that that just adds a whole other dimension to the challenge, to the training challenge they face. There is then the maintenance challenge. All of this, again, requires very large inventories. This is a war at industrial scales. We have not been in such a war since the Second World War. Our defense industries are not geared up for it. Uh, all of the, these are very serious challenges. And with all the deficiencies Russia has, it's still in this industrial war mindset. Uh, just my second quick footnote. We had very revealing day, and uh, I cannot pronounce Polish uh, names for the life of me, in, in Rzeszow, uh, in um, Eastern Poland, which is a major uh, hub for supplying uh, Ukraine. The, and certain things become clear there. And one of them is Poland is not supporting Ukraine. Poland is defending Poland mm. in Ukraine. This is quite clear. British armed forces in Estonia are willing to go to war tomorrow. You could feel it. As Polish armed forces are ready to go to war tomorrow. It's a very impressive setup. Uh, it's a, it would be an exceptionally dangerous place in Europe uh, if it were not so exceptionally well. You can feel deterrence working there. Just to add those 
No, that's certainly good to good to hear, James. And I also wanted I did want to stick with you because you and I were having a conversation off off mic earlier in the day um, about Putin's nuclear blackmail. And you largely see this as a sideshow. I mean, I want to get from both of your thoughts on how how the West should respond to this nuclear blackmail, because if you look at Putin's announcement, this is what got most of the attention. Not so much the mobilization and the referenda, but the nuclear black belt. He knows how to push the West's buttons. How should we respond to this? Point one, Russians are masters at intimidation. It is a pillar policy. So, of course, they were doing that uh, and making these threats. But I think that the United States in particular spelled out to them that the U.S. has the capability to destroy much, even most, of their war-making potential without using nuclear weapons. And if they used any, all bets would be off. And amongst everything else, the Black Sea fleet would be at the bottom of the sea in 35 minutes. So um, I, uh, I was always skeptical about how serious they were in this regard, and now I am even more skeptical. Incidentally, there's a major indicator of warning, which we didn't see. If they were really on the verge of using nuclear weapons, I think Beijing would have something to say about it, and I don't think we've heard from them. Now, then there's a second concern I have, because I think this whole nuclear, uh, this whole attention on nuclear weapons is also being used for diversionary purposes by Russia. We forget that Russia sees itself as being at war with the West. Ukraine is, in Clausewitzian terms, the center of gravity of the war. But it is what they describe as a total, albeit hybrid, war with the West, which they are pursuing by asymmetric and increasingly menacing means. And it's in that context we have to understand the Nord Stream pipeline explosion. Mm-hmm. And we have to think much more carefully about the vulnerability of our undersea communications cables of the LNG terminals in Europe. A whole raft of things we're not thinking about because we're still thinking of a different type of war than the one Russia is actually waging. Ben, what are your thoughts on this? I know you've warned against uh, self-deterrence, as you've called it, um, on this matter. How do you how do you view this? Because I, I tend to agree with James, but the the governments in the West have to be mindful of the conflict escalating and metastasizing. That that is a a very real thing. Even though I do think the Russians are bluffing here, uh, how do you look at this, Ben? Well, of course, um, it's it is dangerous, and uh, Putin is. Uh, doesn't care how many thousands of people may die, um, so that that's not humanitarian concerns will not be his. Um, but um, I don't I don't think it's likely. Of course, it's possible, um, but I don't think it's likely that they would use a nuclear weapon because number one, I don't see an actual battlefield advantage. I mean, tactical nukes are were designed during Soviet times to create uh, opportunities to be exploited by you know, uh, forces that would drive through the gap that was created by the tactical nuclear weapons in NATO forces. They have nobody to do that with. I mean, there is no exploitation, no uh, uh, 
big piles of Russian tank units waiting to to go through there. So so it won't give them an advantage. And if they destroyed a major Ukrainian city, that would have the opposite of discouraging or deterring the Ukrainians. That would only build resolve. And then, of course, uh, the second thing, and I, I agree completely with James here, if I understood him correctly, it would be impossible for the United States to stay out of it at that point. I think our president made that clear. Um, uh, the National Security Advisor made it clear uh, this in the past few days that there would be drastic consequences. Uh, of course, the Pentagon and the National Security staff would have drawn up a list of options, uh, the full range from angry email to total annihilation and everything in between. And so the combination would would depend a little bit on what did the Russians actually do? And also, I'm sure it would be done in consultation with uh, several of our allies because they would have to deal with some of the consequences. And I imagine it would be done in a way that more likely than not, non-nuclear, and mm-hmm. uh, would, would be done in a way that, that, that did not automatically lead to escalation, i.e. not on Russian territory. So uh, I think not only has that been stated publicly, but it would also be done, I'm sure is being done in hundreds of different conduits. And for sure, the Chinese have have made it clear to the, to the Kremlin that um, they want nothing to do with this. It, they cannot possibly be happy about Russia using a nuclear weapon and what that would entail. The la- and then the last point, the people around Putin um, I would imagine that we are communicating to them somehow and say, hey, look, there will be life after Vladimir Putin. If you have any shred of hope that you will have something that looks like even the faintest return to some sort of normalcy for yourself and your businesses after him, then you will make sure he never touches uh, a nuclear weapon. Yeah. No. And on, on the Chinese piece, Ben, I mean, there's there's been some 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 chatter here in Washington that the Chinese are very alarmed by this um, and that the uh, Putin's meeting with Xi in uh, at, the, at, the, at the Shanghai Council in, in, in Uzbekistan was related to this. And that there's there's talk that actually Xi has sent a message to Putin to cut it out. Now, given the fact that just days after that meeting in Uzbekistan, Putin again engaged in nuclear blackmail during his speech um, is 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 a little bit disturbing. Um, but but it's, it, but it's, it's only blackmail. It's only blackmail if we accept it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's right now it's threatened blackmail. Mm-hmm. And and I think our president and prime minister and even the German chancellor uh, and President Macron and others know that if if they give into it now, it, it never stops. And of course, Iran, North Korea, Pakistan, China, anybody else that has a nuclear weapon, if they see that we roll over for it, then you know they they'll learn a lesson from that. Yeah. No, sticking with you, Ben, I wanted to, to shift gears and talk about the front line and where this war may go next. I mean, you you you, you know a thing, a thing or two about military strategy, tactics and logistics. As you look at this front line, right, where the forces are positioned, where would you advise the Ukrainians to move next? Do they make a move in the south in Kherson? Do they do they do they do they try to encroach into Luhansk Oblast or Donetsk Oblast? Where would you where do you think the Ukrainians should hit next? And where do you expect them to, to, to go next? Well, you know that the Ukrainians have captured the equivalent to two US armored divisions worth of working mm-hmm. tanks. Mm-hmm. I mean that's close to five hundred uh, Russian tanks that are still working have been captured. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, 
that's that's not inconsequential. And James' good points earlier about maintenance and all these kind of things, the, you know, the, the Ukrainians will have no problem maintaining and taking care of uh, these captured vehicles. So th this is real capability that they've got. Now, um, I I think of what's happening in Kherson and and up in the uh, the northern element of this offensive. This is still one one operation, okay. Mm -hmm. um, the the part that's in Kherson, of course, they they're not in a hurry. I don't believe to get in there because Kherson is a Ukrainian city. They don't want it to turn into Mariupol. Uh, but yet you've got several thousand uh, Russian soldiers that are on the right side of the. Uh, Dnipro River, mm -hmm. uh, which, and so potentially they're trapped. Um, and this is a pocket that can be degraded, eliminated. Uh, we'll see how this plays out. But I think the Ukrainians are doing a good job here, uh, being methodical, very professional. I like James' uh, description of the Ukrainian general staff earlier. Um, let that, I mean, that that pocket will eventually be eliminated. And then you've got uh, crossings over the Dnipro, you've got Kherson liberated, and, and that's working. Meanwhile, they are also fixing several thousand Russian troops and they cannot go um, elsewhere. Mm. The arm that's coming now southward, I think uh, I just saw earlier today that uh, people expect that by Saturday, um, this city of Lyman mm. will be, um, that's another three or 4,000 Russian troops potentially that are captured, rolled up there. But what this is all leading to is flowing towards Crimea. Um, and if that's if they're successful there, then what you're going to see, I believe, is um, HIMARS and other rocket launchers start getting within range of Russian uh, facilities on Crimea. Mm -hmm. Once they're able to start putting uh, rockets into the Russian air bases and, and even Sevastopol, then Crimea actually becomes untenable for the Russians. So you know that that great movie, The Last of the Mohicans, mm -hmm. as the French are advancing the uh, the trenches closer and closer to the mm -hmm. English port there, right? And the whole purpose, this is math. This is siege warfare. You get the guns there, and then it's, then it's just math and time. And mm -hmm. I, uh, that's an oversimplification of uh, of this, but uh, HIMARS or other types of long-range weapons, then Crimea um, becomes very. They've already Russians have already relocated their submarines because they they can see the the danger approaching. Mm. James, you've been following this pretty closely too. Would you concur with Ben's assessment? Um, without getting onto this very exciting area of Crimea. Uh, just to reinforce Ben's earlier point, the Ukrainians, General Zaluzhny, the commander-in-chief, knows how to deal with an animal that can be trapped and is slowly trapping the animal and then progressively crippling it. And with very limited resources, because he knows that the Russians still have considerable resources, and when there's a weakness, he exploits it. Mm -hmm. When they're not looking somewhere, they achieve surprise there, but they don't attack strength. They right. don't have a timeline. They are wrestling with this enemy and pinning him down and gradually dismembering him. And that's the whole strategy. And it's very well executed. And we need to do 
as much listening to them as talking to them. Um, when when they they need to help give us advice about where we can be helpful because they really know what they're doing with what they have. And do you do you expect Harrison to be the next big uh, theater of operations? We're going to where we're going to see significant Ukrainian advances. I don't know. Mm. Uh, they might have a clearer sense of that than I do. I really think it depends on what happens on the ground. I think we could see some major changes, but the Ukrainians are in a mindset, and they have also a deployment pattern because of their decentralized deployment structure, where they will exploit. Uh, any fresh opportunities that arise anywhere else. I mean, do not forget that Donetsk Oblast is still very, very much in play here. Yeah. So it can still be, it can be there. And if the Russians that are, who are still advancing in some places overextend themselves on the way to Kramatorsk, they'll just get mm -hmm. the heads up. They'll just get mm -hmm. the heads up. Yeah. Uh, so it will really depend on what's going on on the ground. Mm -hmm. Anything to add to that, Ben? Well, um, again, I like James's uh, characterization of this as, you know, it's, uh, first of all, the Ukrainian general staff is good. I mean, they, they've been at this for about eight years. They've learned a lot, um, and they, have, they are making the best use of the resources that they have. Uh, and I think also, they, of course, they know the Russians. They understand Russian capabilities. Uh, and pretty much the, the Ukrainians are operating in friendly territory, so they don't have to worry about their rear area the way the Russians are having to worry about it. They, I mean, they are surrounded by tens of thousands of friendly sensors, if you will. So they're able to uh, understand what's going on around them. And uh, I think they feel pretty confident that there's not a gigantic Russian counterattack lurking in Belgorod somewhere that's going to, like would have happened in 1943 or, or 44. But it's, I think it is important Keep in mind, this is one theater of operations. That exactly. Everything that's happening is, is one entity that has parts, a main effort and supporting effort. And um, I can't tell um, how much of this is, um, which where the main effort is now. I think it probably is kind of like James said, that exploiting where do you have weakness, where can you go? Uh, but eventually, Harrison, that will be uh, an important prize not only psychologically, uh, not only because you've got, you know, the a capital of an oblast uh, will be liberated, but more importantly, uh, you'll get several thousand troops, Russian troops off the board. And these are some of the better units that are trapped there. And, um, and then you'll be, you'll have a bridgehead on the eastern side of the Dnipro, which will be, that, and that's the closest to the uh, you know the canal, the northern mm -hmm. approach into Crimea, and Mariupol uh, as well. It starts to roll up all of the over the sea. That's what I'm saying. It all so everything is working its way towards towards Crimea. Yeah, and uh -huh. I would just add, don't discount the impact and significance of Ukrainian partisans and special forces mm. uh, operating on territory that Russia occupies. Now, yeah. it's very interesting, very interesting to me, where the hell is the Russian Navy, the vaunted Black Sea Fleet? They, they are nowhere in this fight. They, for months, since the, the Moskva hit the bottom, the, the Navy, the best they've been able to do is launch uh, cruise missiles. They have no amphibious, nothing. They're terrified of coming anywhere near the Ukrainian coast, and Ukraine does not even have a Navy. Mm -hmm. So that the Black Sea Fleet 
is not is not in the fight. They're hiding uh, around Crimea where they've got uh, ground-based air defense to protect them from missiles. Uh, the Russian Air Force, pretty much the same thing. I mean, I don't think, James, tell me if you see different. I don't think there's been a day in the last seven months where we saw a what we would call a joint operation, where you had Russian Air, uh, air mm. Force operating in support of ground force. It's like three different kind of things. And I think, obviously, we don't want them to be able to do that. Yeah. It is staggering that this, um, this army that I thought and others thought even now understood operational art and had this in its genetic code has been incapable of conducting coordinated operations. This um, I, I, I argued with a number of people who I thought were overestimating the strengths of the Russian army, but I must admit that I never expected mm -hmm. that we would see that all of the ills of the mutated Putin system, the venality, the incompetence, the servility, the mendacity, all of this uh, concentrated not in, 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 the arm, in the armed forces. Mm -hmm. um, it absolutely staggering. This is just a, a, a rotten to the, the. It is rotten to the core. Yeah, no, this this is shocking. Um, on the Moskva, one of the funniest memes I saw uh, was the, the "Let me get this straight: you just lost your flagship in a land war to a country that doesn't have a navy." And I think that really summed a lot of it up. Uh, before we move into the second section, I just wanted to kind of touch on one other thing, and this is more we touched on it earlier: um, the situation inside of Russia. How serious, James? You watch you watch Russian domestic politics closely, as do I. How serious a problem? has the Putin mobilization really, really created? I, I couldn't help but notice a, uh, a, 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 a hilarious post by uh, Steve Rosenberg, the BBC's correspondent, on the different groups that have managed or requested deferments, um, agricultural workers, construction workers, male teachers, horticulturists, fitness trainers, um, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Uh, a hilarious tweet from, from Steve Rosenberg yesterday. But James, how do you see this affecting the domestic dynamics in Russia? I'm reminded of something a Russian friend of mine said many, many years ago. He said, uh, you know, about the system over there, Putin system. He said it could carry on like this for another 10 years or disappear completely next Thursday afternoon. Mm. Um, I, I think still so much of what is happening is taking place below ground. I recently, in good conversations with Russians I know, young, who are part of what could be called the inner immigration, and I'm astonished at how uh, knowledgeable they are, how pro-Ukrainian they are, how heartened they are by Zelensky, how much they hate all of this. But you'll never see these people at a protest. Mm. You'll never see them stick their heads above the parapets. And they're being very rational. Why do that? And you're going to get it cut off. But uh, again, when you are now calling up lots of people with military experience, who up to now have been very strong supporters into all this, they're, they're going to react. Something there at some point is going to break. And I don't think any of us can predict uh, when and how. 
uh, and at an elite level, it is possible that mm. something will break. The question I have, and Ben must be asking the same question, is how much of the old general staff system and military system and ethos still survive? Uh, because that is a very orderly professional system with standards and disciplines. Um, and how much will they put up with? Is there any of it left? Can Putin really do what he wants with these people? I'm inclined to doubt it. Another aspect of this nuclear thing, yes, Putin can give an order mm -hmm. uh, just to, to launch a nuclear strike, but you it requires the actions of a number of entities and people to actually do this. This is not a simple, this is not a very simple matter. So I mean, there's things that um, I, 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 I could see the pieces, but I can't answer the question. Right. Well, no, one of the most frustrating things right now is we don't really have the visibility into in, into kind of Kremlin court politics and, and, and the, the like that we that we had even just a few years ago. Um, this is a kind of a frustration for for people like us right now. Ben, any thoughts on what James was saying about the general staff here? I thought it was an interesting point. Well, you, you remember there was a guy, he was considered a real, you know, a respected sort of academic general staff officer, an older retired one, and he spoke out against this back before February. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was remarkable that a guy like that, a revered, even though he was retired, of course, I haven't heard anything from him. I think if he's still alive, he's been shut down. Um, so it's, he didn't have a lot of other old retired guys joining him in that. So it's fascinating. There were two of them. One was Eva Shop and the other was mm -hmm. Right. And they were very critical of the ham-handed way this was done, but that's because they wanted a Soviet-era mobilization and full-scale war. Given the, the lack of transparency of what goes on in Russia, and so we don't, obviously, we don't have the ability to see everything that's happening, mm -hmm. but we, when, so when you do see things, you have to wonder, is this a one-off or is just the tip? Um, the uh, several incidents that have happened, you know, we saw guys going into recruiting offices, shooting people, uh, the uh, right, various right. other things happening. And then this morning I saw something, it was in Dagestan, where a man was so unhappy because his son had been grabbed, conscripted in this uh, mobilization. Uh, he, uh, it, the video was him like wrestling with a couple of the recruiting officers and then he blows himself up. Uh -huh. Usually we see the aftermath of these things. This one, you see it happen. You know, it, it struck me that um, you have people using violence to counter, not just protest, blowing themselves up or shooting. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I don't know if these are the only three examples in the whole place, but if they're happening out in Dagestan and places like that, you know, they're fed up with being the bill payer. Right. Uh, for all this. Yeah. And James, your point on, on, on the, the non-ethnic Russians is, is also well taken that they're, they are being disproportionately mobilized. Correct. Yeah. And I'm grateful to Ben for, you know, for bringing up Dagestan because this is where you really start to see the cracks emerging in some of the predominantly non-ethnic Russian um, republics. If, if Tatarstan, which has long had uh, significant autonomy and uh, an understanding with, with Moscow, if they start to wobble, that's going to have terrible repercussions. What's going on in Central Asia now, 
mm. and the loss of Russian authority in Central Asia also has reverberations inside the Russian Federation. So there are, you know, lots of interfaces here that mm. are starting to come apart. Yeah, no, and we'll, we'll be looking at that going forward. That's a good place to segue. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at the situation in Europe. As winter approaches, an energy crisis looms, and Putin's attempts to destabilize the continent and divide the West continue. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the ETA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from New York City is retired U.S. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, a 30 seven-year veteran of the United States Armed Forces and the former commander of U.S. Army Europe. These days, Ben is a senior advisor at Human Rights First. And joining us from the magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn, it's veteran Russia watcher James Scher, a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. So European officials are saying that the evidence is pointing to sabotage in the blast that damaged the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines. Many are pointing fingers at Russia. And while it's probably too early to reach any uh, definitive conclusions, although we all have very, very strong suspicions along this regard, the incidents do point to the growing fears about Europe's energy security uh, this winter and Putin's effort to exploit and leverage it. Meanwhile, in the wake of a victory for a far-right coalition in Italy's elections, mass protests uh, over soaring energy prices, uh, protests erupted over soaring energy prices and inflation in the Czech capital, Prague. Um, James, you and Ben are both, of course, in Europe, um, in, in, or, uh, both live in Europe. Um, how concerned should we be, James, about the continent's cohesion? And it's uh, it's it's continued will to, uh, to to support Ukraine going forward. I know it's not a problem in Estonia where you're located, but the but the but Europe's a big continent. Concerned, but not panicking. Uh, I mean, after all, the most um, of, of the two right wing populist parties in Italy, the strongest, the stronger one is uh, is very anti Putin and uh, pro Ukraine. Um, the one of the most encouraging developments I've seen of late is that Emmanuel Macron has lost all of his previous ambivalences, and he is a very tough, staunch, steadying influence now. Um, and I think, you know, I, I just go I, for once. I go along with the establishment assessment that we can get through this next year. 
And if we do, then the situation for us becomes visibly and progressively better, whereas Russia's gamble will have failed. I mean, this is, again, the other major strategic point that this is a huge gamble for Russia. Russia lacks, is not going to be able to construct the infrastructure to replace the European gas market uh, elsewhere. It, it, it just will take too long. It's too expensive. Um, the, the markets elsewhere uh, in the global south are, in many respects, far less favorable to Russia than the markets they uh, are losing in Europe. So what does a country, what does this country that is critically dependent on income from hydrocarbon exports do in a situation like this? So if we don't crack, uh, we're on very positive territory. Mm -hmm. I think we have to get through this year. This is the critical year. It's uh, like Britain 1940, 41. Mm -hmm. uh, we've just got to get through it. And James, you said earlier, and I, if you could elaborate on this a little bit, you see these explosions in the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines as you obviously think the Russians are behind this, as am I, although no definitive conclusions have been, been reached by any, any governments, to my knowledge, yet. Um, but you, this is how we clearly are viewing this. How, do you, how does this fit into this broader strategy for Putin's play to, 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 to make this winter as miserable as possible for the Europeans? Well, he is somebody who is... Uh, accustomed to employing asymmetric methods of struggle against an opponent. Uh, and these are areas that we have not thought about in strategic or defense terms. Energy security, security of communications. Where is the debate about a debate that started in NATO some years ago about at what level a cyber attack becomes an Article 5, right. uh, uh, an Article 5 situation? What about attacks on energy facilities, which are deniable, as you were saying, by non-military means right. that are not, uh, you, you can't readily attribute in cultures like ours that demand New York Bar Association standards of evidence before taking any action? If we're in a war and we demand this and we function this way, by the time we get all the evidence we need, everybody is dead. So. Mm. These are, there are very soft targets here that are, that are vital not only to our welfare, but our lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I just want to add one more dimension, because I'm very interested in Ben's view about all of this. Um, the, the energy and food questions are very intimately related because of the, the dependency on agricultural producers for energy. Uh, and you know, the mythology is that the blockade of Ukraine's grain shipments now is resolved through the Turkish broker deal. No, it hasn't been. It's been eased. Mm. And the latest figures, the monitoring group in Ukraine that monitors this continuously, is that now it's the case that 48 of 100 ships in Ukraine, um, um, they would deliver grain and other produce, uh, are still blockaded there. And so the, a partial blockade is maintained. And as a result, there is no global calamity as yet when mm -hmm. it comes to food supplies. 
but it's very, very tight. Now, if you are Egypt and you are dependent on grain from Ukraine and Russia, knowing full well what is going on, because you could see it yourself, are you even going to be tempted to do anything that would offend Vladimir Putin? I don't think so. Mm. And that's true for many others. There is a huge imbalance, uh, which is all part of this picture, between West laxitude, comparative laxitude towards the global South, and the uh, enormous attention that Russia has been paying to key players. Um, and all of this is part, I am suggesting that all of this is part of one, of one picture mm. of Russia's hybrid war uh, against, uh, against the West. We need, we need war cabinets that can bring people together from different domains and think about, integrate all of this and think about it in a strategic way. Ben, you're in Germany, which is kind of ground zero for this uh, this, this 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 situation in Europe. How, how do you see this? And you were actually once partially responsible for the defense of Europe. Um, well, how, how, how do you see this? Um, James paints a pretty bleak picture here in terms of what this winter might look like, what the Russians might try to do, with the caveat that if we get through this, we're going to be in a very good place. But how do, how do you look at it right now? Well, there's no if. We will, of course, get through it. Uh, I think the Kremlin played their gas card too early. Um, forced the Germans to uh, start looking elsewhere, and they had time to do it. <clears throat> They're up over 90% uh, of storage capacity um, already. So uh, Mr. Habeck, the vice chancellor, who's also responsible for all uh, environment and energy uh, issues as the super minister, um, he even used the word, we'll get through this winter comfortably. I was, I was surprised. Um, but that, that was his description. So the, the Kremlin played their gas card too early uh, so that we all had time to start looking elsewhere. And I think the, the Germans were already starting to lean towards the door anyway. This just accelerated it. And, and the U.S. is going to, uh, I think, uh, they've been diverting gas. Um, now, look, it's, it's still going to be expensive. I mean, I hear Germans all the time talk about their gas bill is probably going to be three times higher than usual. But there is a wonderful interview with Gary Kasparov in Die Welt that came out just a couple of days ago that's worth reading if you haven't already seen it. And in it, uh, in fact, let me just read a line from it. It says, uh, uh, you Germans have benefited from cheap Russian natural gas for years and thus provided Putin with the basis for his aggression. Yes, it will be difficult, but it is only money. Ukraine pays in blood. It is in everyone's interest to get through this winter because it will be the last winter. And that's the key point. This, this should be the last winter of Russian aggression. It, the, we have the capability, if we deliver everything we said we did, we break him and they are defeated on the battlefield. And then it's a whole different game. But if we if we give in to, oh, my God, he might use a nuclear weapon, okay, or if, we, if he's allowed to protract this, make it into a longer conflict, then it won't be the last winter. So actually, most Germans I talk to now, uh, I, I was in front of the German stock exchange the other day uh, talking to a group of their executives, and then a, um, 
another event where there were quite a few serious German business people. And I would say minimum two thirds of them are completely on board with doing what, you know, holding the Russians accountable, not rolling on, not rolling over for it. Of course, there's a part of German society, particularly in the East, uh, the right wing IFD types, there, there will be protests, big protests. But um, I think uh, I, I think that Germany, Western Europe, we're going to see this through. Now, you, you both seem to think that Germany, Germany in particular, has turned a corner and that Europe in general is actually in much better shape than the conventional wisdom on this side of the Atlantic uh, yeah. seems to portray it. Is that am I correct in in, in, in what I'm hearing here? Yes, I'm certainly more. I, I, I'm guardedly optimistic about where mm. we are in Europe. I just I I wrote uh, Ben might have seen it just a couple of months ago um, a um, an article called "The Dangers of an Undefeated Russia That Pulled No Punches." The Germans were extremely keen to publish it, and uh, in, in 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 German started, and they said we started a big discussion here. We need to have so you know all this is very uh, very encouraging. Mm -hmm. I, um, I I think um, German opinion is um, Germany is in a much better place than than people outside Germany mm -hmm. imagine it to be. So I fully I fully agree with Ben on this. I like where Germany is moving and where okay. france is and where france is moving uh as as well so i'm not lacking confidence in europe's future that that that's great to hear and i am watching the clock right now i'm very mindful of the time of my production team um so i'm gonna we're gonna we're gonna move toward the end here any last thoughts any last points that either of you wanted to make before i wrap it up for the week um, um i am very worried on this side on the american side that um, too many are, are looking a little bit wobbly, um, that, uh, I, and I think it's 100% for domestic um, mm -hmm. uh, purposes with midterms coming up, but to listen to the uh, garbage that comes out of Tucker Carlson, for example, I mean, these are these are talking points drafted by the Kremlin. They have to be. I mean, it's, it's yeah. unbelievable. Well, who I mean, repeated them? <laughs> right. And, and so... Um, uh, I can't believe that the party of Reagan um, has mm. turned into, or at least a part of it, um, is somehow uh, looking for a way out of this or, or dragging their feet or not sure that they can want to keep supporting Ukraine. Um, and I, I think it's despicable. And, and, and I think that um, we have got to make sure that Americans, uh, that we do not let this opportunity pass. This is about protecting a struggling young democracy. Ukraine's been a democracy for about 30 something years. Nobody questions their last two presidential elections. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so we've been at it for about 250 years and we haven't quite got it right. So I, I think um, we need to uh, stick with Ukraine. Uh, and, and when the Republicans talk about, well, we need to focus on China. This is all about China. It is. If, if we don't, if we, all of us together give in to economic pressure from Russia and, and are not willing to stick with it and defeat them, the Chinese will absolutely not be impressed with anything that we say about them. And they're only five years away. Right. Absolutely. James, last word to you, James. Last point. I have had uh, very serious anxieties about 
some quarters of the administration and where their thinking was, because it was quite clear that they wanted this to end in a negotiated compromise. Um, I am encouraged just within the past week or 10 days now by what I see from my vantage point 4,000 miles away that, a, that an intellectual corner has been turned. When I listened to Jake Sullivan's recent interviews, what I heard was someone who finally understood we've been reasonable, we've been imposing restraints on ourselves, And you know what? It hasn't made any difference. Yeah, Russian. no, I, that 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 was encouraging because I was I'm concerned. Getting, the same I don't day. know if you see that in Washington, but I'm now a bit less worried about where the administration's head is than I was, than I have been over the past several months. Yeah, I think that's largely because Putin has made it really, really hard for those that want to make this argument. In it's made, so, he's made it very, very hard for people who want to be reasonable. Yes, yeah, yeah. and it's finally got through to them. You know, that's. <laughs> That's a, a great point, James, if I could pile on. You know, for, remember for the last few years, people talked about Putin like he could play chess and go simultaneously while standing on his head, and he was somehow genius. And I mean, you could fill up a page with all the strategic mistakes they have made. I mean, everything about this situation now that's bad for Russia is 100% entirely his own doing. Mm -hmm. And that is a good place to wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from New York City has been retired U.S. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, a 37-year veteran of the United States Armed Forces and the former commander of U.S. Army Europe. These days, Ben is a senior advisor at Human Rights First. And also joining us from the magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn has been veteran Russia watcher James Scher, a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book, Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. Thank you, gentlemen, for an enlightening discussion. And thank you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power of Ripple podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with an ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 